Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Over the weekend, Cuba saw its biggest protests in decades. They spread everywhere, from the streets of Havana to small towns. The protests were remarkable because they were so widespread, but also they weren't particularly organized. From afar, it looked like a spontaneous expression of Cubans' frustration and anger. There's a lot to be outraged about in Cuba right now. The island is experiencing food and medicine shortages and frequent blackouts. And then there's the pandemic, which hit Cuba hard, especially its tourism industry. And it's nowhere close to being over. The island is experiencing a surge of cases and deaths. And Cuba developed its own vaccines, which the government says are effective. But for a lot of reasons, immunization is slow going. And it's not just about the economy and the pandemic. The protesters are chanting Patria y Vida, homeland and life. And in an authoritarian country like Cuba, when people take to the streets, they are challenging the regime. And it's always political. Where this all goes, whether it turns into a more sustained political movement, Nobody really knows. But given the history and the fraught relationship between the United States and Cuba, it's really impossible to ignore. So to understand what's going on and how it factors into U.S. foreign policy, I spoke to Michael Bustamante, an associate professor of Latin American history at Florida International University and the author of Cuban Memory Wars, Retrospective Politics in Revolution and Exile. Our conversation is coming up today on Worldly from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Over the weekend, we had these huge protests in, in Cuba, some of the largest that the country has seen in decades, if I'm not mistaken. What is the latest from Cuba right now? The latest from Cuba is hard to figure out. Let's see, what day of the week is it? I've kind of lost track. It's We're talking <laughs> on Wednesday. The protests happened on Sunday. So really through Monday and Tuesday, communications coming out of the island were very difficult. The internet was blocked and shut down, at, at the very least on people's cell phones, sort of 3G data access. So only this morning have I started to see people kind of coming back online. There's some evidence that there were kind of follow-on protests happening on a more limited way compared to Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. It appears that security forces from the government are still going around kind of looking for folks that were active in the protests, unclear kind of who they're looking for in particular. And so I think the country is all, is just really on on standby. And, uh, you know, in the digital media space, certainly, you know, different sides of the Cuban political equation are, are litigating very different versions of what happened. Right, right. And so, I mean, it's interesting because here at Worldly, we talk about a lot of protests. And so normally we wouldn't give coverage to a big one-day protest. But why were these so significant in, in Cuba? There haven't been protests on this scale in 60 years, period, full stop. The last time that something even remotely like this happened, you'd have to go back to the early 1990s. In the early 90s, Cuba 
sort of similar to today was in the midst of a very deep economic crisis. In that case, provoked by the fall of the Soviet Union and, and, and the Eastern Bloc and all of Cuba's major trading partners. Today, the sources of Cuba's economic crisis are different. But in 1994, there were demonstrations in Havana, the capital city, at kind of the peak of that crisis, but they never left the capital. And so what's really remarkable about these protests, you know, even if the scale of the protests in Cuba on Sunday pales in comparison to even some of the things we've seen elsewhere in Latin America recently, in Chile, in Colombia, you know, for Cuba, it was quite unique because these protests were not just in Havana. They didn't even start there, and they happened in a number of cities and towns throughout the island. Interesting. And you you mentioned you said basically 60 years, and so that would place it around the time of the Cuban Revolution. I just want to make sure we have the timeline sort of correct. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the point is that nothing like this has really happened since uh, the Cuban uh, Revolution came to power, and certainly since the, the Cuban government that came out of the Cuban Revolution really consolidated its its position uh, in 1960, 1961, vis-a-vis other political forces in the country at the time. Gotcha. And so I guess the question is then why now? Why all of a sudden are we seeing this kind of, as you say, widespread protest demonstrations, unrest, what have you? I don't think there's a single answer to that. I would guess there rarely is <laughs> to this kind of thing. There's certainly a confluence of factors that I would point to that contributed to this moment, which doesn't mean that it was easy to predict that it was going to happen on the day that it did, right? As I was already kind of alluding to, Cuba's is in the midst of a very deep economic crisis. It's its worst economic crisis in 30 years. That crisis has multiple sources. Close ally Venezuela's economy has you know, been imploding for a number of years. That has affected the Cuban economy. The Trump administration put on very harsh new sanctions on Cuba. That has also done damage to the economy. The Cuban government has really moved very slowly to reform its own economy and follow through on even some of the modest market reforms that they've been talking about doing for years. And then you have COVID. You know, COVID in the economic situation that was already not great was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of depriving the island of of tourism and, and foreign currency. So it's a time of rolling shortages, rolling blackouts. People that were around in the 90s, this feels like that, even if it's not quite as bad yet. Um, but I don't want to suggest either that this is all sort of economic. There's a tendency when we talk about Cuba to try to separate economic things from political things. And of course, these are all deeply imbricated. And we saw from the protesters that I think economic grievances are fueling their feelings, but those feelings are being expressed as political denunciations, right? And and uh, direct challenges to the authority of the government, demands for political change, even if the shape of that political change that they want is sort of ill-defined and um, and difficult to categorize. That's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense in terms of the, the Cuban government's, I guess, response or handling. You mentioned some of these economic reforms that they've kind of failed to implement. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because it seems one of the things that people have been discussing around the protests in Cuba are things like food shortages, medicine shortages, just rising prices. And I'm wondering what role the Cuban government has to play in all of that. It's very difficult from my point of view to disentangle external and internal factors that contribute to Cuba's economic situation. I mean, just a quick anecdote, the first time I went to Cuba in 2005 as a Cuban-American born in the United States, I went with this idea, I want to figure out sort of whose fault it is, 
<laughs> in terms of the economic situation? Is it U.S. sanctions? Is it the way that things are structured internally? And 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 it's both. Uh, these things, you know, one thing uh, reinforces the other. Um, so just to to backpedal a little bit, I think it's you know some context is is worth noting. If you go back to say 2006, 2008, this is a time when. Fidel Castro fell ill and stepped down. His brother, Raul Castro, took over as head of state. And Raul Castro really started to talk about economic matters in a way that his brother never did. Um, He talked about the need for structural reform. They launched what they called a a project of updating the Cuban social and economic model. They never suggested that this was meant to be a break from socialism, but very clearly they were talking about some kind of modest economic reforms. Some of that moved forward. They liberalized a bit more space for a, a private sector in Cuba. Then that had a kind of a, a when when Obama normalized relations with Cuba or began to, and you had an increase in U.S. visitors, those people helped boost the fortunes of that sort of nascent private sector. So there was this moment of kind of rising expectations. And yet then the government sort of pulled back. They delayed some of the more difficult reforms that they needed to do. Um, like currency reform, which is a topic we can go into in detail if you're interested. And they continued to have an approach to kind of private sector expansion that was very, very micromanaged and continued to treat it perhaps more as a a necessary evil rather than something that was going to be a key aspect of the economy. And even as the rhetoric around that has changed, right, just in the last year, they've they've actually talked about moving forward with greater private sector expansion, legalizing small and medium-sized enterprises in a way that wasn't possible before. The follow-through hasn't been there yet. And they went ahead with a currency unification process because there was a dual currency system in Cuba. Really, at the worst time, they did it at a moment of weakness. At, at you know, after a year of dealing with COVID and and without having follow through on other some of the other private sector reforms that would have given the economy a way to kind of respond to the effects of that devaluation. And so, it's just been a a, a series of compounded errors and missteps, I would say. And then, of course, you know, U.S. sanctions doesn't make it easier, you know, at all. It creates impediments to the kind of economic reforms, in many ways that, uh, you know, Cuban leaders themselves have said that they want to move forward. So, you know, it's it's all of that rolled into one. Interesting. So it, it so basically it's hard to kind of isolate these factors because they all kind of feed into each other. So I'll try to sort of take them. I definitely want to talk about the sanctions and their influence, but I am kind of curious about this currency reform thing because I do see it popping up. And it is, as someone who's terrible with anything that involves numbers <laughs> and, and economics, this is very confusing to me. But it sounds like essentially Cuba had two currencies and one was kind of more dependent on... I'm actually going to just stop myself before I say something wrong and let you actually tell me what it means. <laughs> I'll, I'll try. I mean, I'm not an economist either. And so and talking about currencies, exchange rates, I, I, I get um, you know confused myself. Some history, briefly, if you'll permit me, I think is relevant to understanding this. The origins of Cuba's dual currency system as it existed until recently lie back in the 1990s, that period that Cubans call euphemistically the special period following the collapse of the Soviet Union. Cuba's economy tanked by one-third in three or four years. GDP declined by one-third, 33%. And suddenly, sort of the the purchasing power of the local currency that, that existed and the salaries that Cubans were accustomed to earning from the state really, really decreased. Their value decreased. And so in order to, in effect, protect 
prices in the state-subsidized portion of the economy, the kind of things that people were allowed to buy at a subsidized rate through, through a ration system on a monthly basis, and not have to jack those prices up. The Cuban government legalized holding of U.S. dollars, actual U.S. dollars, which were already circulating in the black market at the time. They created a parallel system of stores that sold some things in U.S. dollars, largely imported items that were deemed kind of luxury items, even if they were things like soap and shampoo or liquor. And then with the earnings the, in, in foreign currency from those uh, sales, the idea was that they could keep prices in the state subsidized part of the economy from going through the roof. And there are some Cuban economists will argue that that worked for a time, but it also created a lot of distortions because the other part of this system is that it's really almost not, the most important thing is not just about two currencies. It's actually that there were two exchange rates functioning in the economy. For Cubans on the streets, for forever, basically, we're at a certain point, a dollar-denominated equivalent that the Cuban government created called the Cuban convertible peso, see, it's complicated, <laughs> was worth only 24 Cuban pesos, normal pesos, right? But for state enterprises, the exchange was one-to-one. So it's kind of like monopoly math. And in effect, state enterprises were working on balance sheets that just didn't reflect any kind of real reality of the value of Cuba's currency. And so it created distortions. It incentivized imports rather than exports that had if impacts for Cuba's um, foreign trade balance, all kinds of things. And so unifying the currencies and the currency exchange rates, importantly, has been a really important economic reform that is necessary for the long-term health of the Cuban economy. But it effectively means a devaluation. Right. And so devaluations have short term pain. We know this from lots of places. And they finally, after years and years of talking about it, unified the exchange rates and thus, in effect, unified the currency system in January of this year. But in the absence of the possibility of the Cuban economy to respond to it through, say, private sector activity, or more private sector activity. In the, at the height of the COVID pandemic, when Cuba was already reeling economically for lots of other reasons, suffice it to say, like, this has hit people really hard, right? Prices have, have shot up. There's an informal currency exchange market. And Cuba has actually gone back to a partial dollarization in some other stores in an attempt to capture remittances coming from abroad in hard currency and direct Cubans to spend their money there. So in a way, they've unified the exchange rates and in a way they haven't, in a way they've made it more complicated because you now have a partly re-dollarized part of this uh, part of the economy. There's official exchange rates of different kinds. There's unofficial ones. It's a mess if I haven't made that made that clear um, in, in, my, in my attempt to explain it. Yeah. So if I'm trying to kind of sum it up, if I had this convertible currency, right, the sort of thing that they eliminated, once they they made this reform, Basically, the money that I had is basically worth less, right? Is that basically what happened if that's... Not not quite. I mean, what they said was, because when they unified the exchange rates, the, the street rate that had been 1 to 24 or 1 to 25, that stayed the same. And then they told the state sector, now your rate is the same. It's no longer 1 to 1. And then they told people, if you're sitting on this convertible peso that's kind of a like a dollar equivalent, you can now exchange those for the regular pesos at the bank or in your bank account, you know, through the exchange rate that, that Cubans are, are have been accustomed to for a long time. So in theory, they were protecting the value of people's, say, deposits in, in CUC. The problem was in Cuba, a lot of people keep cash under the mattress um, and you need 
sometimes cash for things in the informal market. And so, you know, the value of having C, like, like the, the exchange rate in, in practice in many aspects of daily life is not that. And so there was kind of a rush of people to get rid of CUC and just prices have gone up. So even if the you have a, now a different currency that in theory represents the value that you had in the in the CUC, now prices are higher, right? Uh, and and so you know your your money is going uh, doesn't go as far. And this happened at a time when there wasn't really a way to sort of stabilize the economy because there wasn't an expansion of private businesses and businesses like tourism, for example, which is a huge part of Cuba's economy, just couldn't do anything because there was just no travel in the year of the pandemic. Yeah, pretty much. And the tourism industry is just one example. It's a prominent one. And it's an industry that the state has the big stake in when you look at hotels, beach resorts, that kind of a thing. But it's also an industry that affects that nascent private sector that I had talked about that had started to, to come up. People who were renting rooms through things like Airbnb, which still has a presence in Cuba, people who run private restaurants, like all those folks have, have basically been shut down. And all of the kind of like ripple effects that that, that that has, right? Another source of foreign currency in the Cuban economy, it must be noted, is the money that people from Cubans outside of Cuba either bring into Cuba or send to Cuba. The Trump administration put new caps on the amount of money that Cubans can send. And then with COVID cutting off flights, this whole sort of circuit of an informal exchange economy of people bringing cash and then stuff that is then sort of imported kind of under the table and then resold under the table in Cuba, that all was cut off. So it has just been, you know, one problem and one challenge after another. And so that brings us to sort of the external-ish factor in the Trump administration sanctions. So to kind of backtrack, of course, the Obama administration kind of embarked on this historic re-engagement with Cuba, right? And sort of rolled back some of the the restrictions, economic and travel, which helped tourism and also allowed for increased remittances. And so that was in place. And then Trump came into power and sort of slowly began to roll those back. But really in 2019, kind of really started to put the the pressure on in terms of sanctions and did so as he was going out the door, so to speak. How has that played? In? I mean, it definitely seems from what you said that it's exacerbated the crisis. But I guess speak a little bit to where these Trump sanctions stay in and how they're making the crisis worse, I suppose. Sure. Just backpedaling a bit, the Obama normalization policy began in 2014, late 2014. Uh, but, but even before that, I mean, you have to go back to 2009 to some early measures that the Obama administration has started to take to free up certain forms of travel. Um, they lifted a cap on remittances well before this uh, kind of big normalization push that began in 2014. But after 2014, things accelerated. It became easier for Americans to travel to Cuba. Everyone wanted to, quote unquote, get to Cuba before it changes, including actually lots of people from Europe and the rest of the world who decided now is our time to go before the Americans come and all muck it up. Right. To get those antique cars and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. All that all that stereotype stuff where, you know, Cubans are seen as almost specimens in a looking in, in, in a museum piece, uh, a Cold War museum piece, rather than actually breeding living human beings with aspirations and who might want to go to a Starbucks one day, you know, or as, as much as I am not a fan of, of chain stores myself. So so all of that had an effect of really, I think, increasing economic activity, opportunity, boosting this private sector that was emerging it must be recognized that not everybody was beneficiaries of that. There were winners and losers of that process. 
one of the paradoxes of the Obama years is that they were years of this a lot of excitement around Cuba's nascent private sector expansion, but also some of the highest numbers of out-migration from Cuba that we had seen in years. Migration that was not sort of people on rafts, which is, I think, you know, sometimes the image that people have, but, you know, Cubans traveling to other places in Latin America and literally going overland all the way to the U.S.-Mexico border. When the Trump administration came in at first in 2017, the changes were more rhetorical than, than real. They talked about canceling Obama's quote-unquote Cuba deal, uh, a very Trumpian way of framing it. In reality, though, it wasn't, as you said, until 2019 to 2020 that we got a really sort of intense rollback of, of pretty much everything that that the, the Obama administration had done. So, you know, this has just, I mean, at the most obvious, you know, you restrict the numbers of travelers in a country where tourism is as important as it is, you're going to impact the economy in general. You're going to impact that private sector. We were we were seeing some of that already. The Trump administration also, as I mentioned before, put in new uh, limits on the amount of money that people could remit to family members on the island. That has an impact on the Cuban economy insofar as it decreases foreign exchange earnings, right? Hard currency from abroad that's being sent in, that then the Cuban economy laps up, the Cuban banking system laps up, and then it uses to import as an example, something like 70% of the food that Cubans eat every day, which speaks to a deeper economic problem, which is why an island as big and fertile as Cuba is not more self-sufficient when it comes to its own food production. The Trump administration kind of went after international banks doing business with Cuba, shut down financial links that just made it more difficult and complicated for Cuba to, to trade. I could go on. All of these things have had an impact on the economy. It's unquestionable. On the other hand, none of them stop the Cuban economy from taking steps to reform its own economic system in the way that at least some of its leaders have been talking about that they need to for for many years, right? This is not an either or scenario. There's a lot of ways in which the Cuban economy, especially focusing on the development of an internal market, could make advances even if U.S. sanctions remain the same, which is not to excuse the impact of the U.S. sanctions or to buy into what I continue to find is a very problematic ethical framework of a maximum pressure campaign whose logic is to intensify suffering as a way to create a pressure cooker that will then pop and result in, in a fall of the government, right? That's That's been there, the, was the Trump administration's theory of the case. Ethically, morally, I have a real big problem with that, but that is not to excuse the Cuban government for its own missteps and economic mismanagement. And just going back to the protests, it's that as much as anything else that people are also you know responding to today. Right. And in case it isn't obvious, of course, the Trump era sanctions are still in place under the Biden administration, which is an interesting spot to be in because Biden did say on the campaign trail that he was going to look into it. But before we get to sort of the political dynamics of that, I am curious about sort of the how the Trump sanctions play into the Cuban regime's response to the protests, because it seems like that is sort of been a way for them to sort of avoid responsibility, as you said, for some of the reforms that they could take? How has sort of the U.S. loomed in the Cuban government's reaction to the demonstrations? It's loomed in a big way in their reactions, and it's not a new sort of discourse. This goes way back. The Cuban government's position for a long time has been that the primary obstacle to the economic and social development of Cuba are U.S. sanctions. 
They don't consider them an embargo, as we tend to call it. They consider it a blockade, which is a metaphor that is inaccurate in some ways, but captures a certain kind of international or third country dynamic of U.S. sanctions, right? U.S. sanctions have impacts on international business with Cuba in some ways, too, that the word embargo as a strictly bilateral thing does not. So certainly in, re- in, in response to the protests on Sunday, insofar as the protests in part come out of a moment of economic crisis, the Cuban government has really been calling the United States to task and saying, if you, the Biden administration, really want to help the Cuban people, which was the language that the Biden administration has used in response, the biggest thing that you can do is just lift you know, the embargo, which the Biden administration can't do alone. It requires an act of Congress. But at the very minimum, they could fulfill some of the campaign promises that they made to unwind some of these sanctions. I think the Cuban government's position also has to do with, uh, and this is not just Cuban government. I, I mean, I know a number of Cubans who feel this way too, who feel that at, in the midst of a global pandemic, in particular, doing nothing, and in fact, doubling down, as the Trump administration did on a pressure cooker strategy, was inhumane, period, right? At a time of, of great economic hardship. That's, that's an argument with which, with which I sympathize to, to a great degree. That said, even if you could blame all of Cuba's economic woes today on U.S. sanctions, which I don't think you can. I don't think you can deny their impact either. But even if you could blame them all on U.S. sanctions, it seems clear from the feelings of those who were on the streets that that's just not going to work. People are, are fed up for lots of different reasons, and they're not just fed up about the economic situation either. So I think that does create a really interesting, novel, challenging dynamic for a Biden administration. I think there are also some some risks associated with it insofar as the Biden administration continues to basically keep Trump policy in play. They will continue to provide ammo to um, those who are dismissing the protests as just the result of really a a pressure cooker strategy and, and a deliberate plan of U.S. destabilization rather than an expression of the voices of Cuba citizens. I am curious about that pressure cooker approach. And I know, too, um, obviously, that is sort of the the line for many supporters of the Trump policies, notably Senator Mark Rubio, but also Senator Bob Menendez, who's the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, sort of seem to have been suggesting that Biden shouldn't remove those Trump sanctions. You have other members of the House and Senate, like Bernie Sanders, who seem to say that, you know, this is a policy of the past. So I'm kind of curious about that political debate. I mean, because it sort of seems that there are, to a degree, both sides can make a case right now that Trump sanctions are working or Trump sanctions are not working, depending on where you stand. I've been thinking about this, too. The the fact that the Biden administration hadn't moved to do anything yet, despite having said they were going to, and the fact that these protests did happen, there are certainly going to be those who claim, and they already are, that this is evidence that the pressure cooker strategy works and that now is not the time to let up, that got the government on the ropes, et cetera. That, I think, is a really short-term analysis. It presupposes that we're at a tipping point in Cuba that I, I don't think we know if we are yet. And I think it continues to recapitulate or risk recapitulating a storyline, which is allowing the Cuban government to ascribe to the United States the role that it is most comfortable ascribing to it. I don't think this is a zero-sum game. 
And I think what's missing from the voices that we hear coming out, uh, whether from Washington or Miami, who are calling for, you know, keeping every sanction on or even not, you know, not touching them at all, are the voices of many members of Cuban society and Cuban civil society who simply don't agree. And it's not to say that Cuban society or civil society speak with one voice. What's interesting about right now in the heat of this moment, there's many arguing that, you know, even talking about the U.S. embargo, U.S. sanctions is irrelevant at a time when the primary order of business is to express solidarity with people who are being repressed in the streets. I get that. I sympathize with that. But eventually this U.S.-Cuba conversation is going to happen. It already is. And, um, you know, I think it's important to recognize or at least include in that conversation the voices of Cuban civil society who want both, who want a change in the way the government is treating the protesters and its citizenry in general, and they want an end to U.S. sanctions. And they don't see these things as being one is being conditional on another. They see them both as paths, you know, out of the difficulties that they face, um, you know, politically and economically. The other thing that I would say is that, you know, when it comes to the U.S.-Cuba policy debate, unfortunately, from my point of view, rarely is that debate in this country just about foreign policy. U.S.-Cuba policy is about domestic politics the Biden administration has been tiptoeing around Cuba policy thus far because they are, as many have pointed out, sort of deathly afraid of making even worse what were very poor electoral returns for Democrats in South Florida among Cubans and Hispanics more broadly in this last election cycle. That, I think, is a simplistic reading of what happened actually in the election of 2020, and it does a disservice to a foreign policy that should be based on a calculation of U.S. interests and what's in the best interest of the Cuban people, not, you know, being afraid of losing electoral votes. But but that is a reality here, and it's definitely shaping, uh, you know, the Biden administration's decision-making process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of the the timing is everything, right? Because if Biden had come in in a flurry of executive orders and, and done away with these, there would have been an outcry. But now that sort of the spotlight's on Cuba, it certainly makes it much harder to maneuver from a domestic political standpoint, which is always a reminder that the best laid plans <laughs> never really work in foreign policy. But I am interested sort of about that, that sense of this sort of heaviness domestically, because I know you, um, a lot of your research focuses on Cubans and the the Cuban Americans and sort of their, their memories and images of Cuba. And I'm curious if you've had any conversations about this particular policy and sort of where the U.S. would go from here. I know it's it's not a monolith, but I'm curious from your perspective, obviously there's nuance there and what you've heard. There's nuance, but there's also been important changes. I mean, one of the things that made the Obama administration's policy approach politically feasible and that then Obama's policy helped further along were changes in Cuban-American political opinion when it came to things like whether the embargo is effective or whether we should at least open certain travel or have an actual embassy in Havana, right? There was there was a, a long progressive kind of openness to moving away from the traditional policy. The Obama administration seized on that opportunity. They made an argument for a different approach. And the opinion polling shows pretty clearly that they brought a lot of Cuban-Americans along with them, such that by 2016, you had a majority of the Cuban-American community saying that they opposed the embargo, period. Since then, the tables have turned. The Trump administration came in with its own theory of the case, its own rhetoric. They were in Miami early and often, hammering home a message. You combine that with 
signs of uh, kind of slowing down or gumming up of the reform process in Cuba itself. And you have a recipe for rising bitterness and frustration among precisely the cohorts of the Cuban American community, the more recently arrived immigrants that in the past had been more open to a different policy approach and had been more likely to be going back and forth you know, to the island. So the politics of the issue now are complicated. There's no question. But I think the lesson that at least so far the Biden administration has not learned is that they're complicated because Democrats didn't do a good enough job making an argument, defending their policy and building a constituency that would be lasting enough. And they still have an opportunity to argue for a different approach and, 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 and a different message. That does become more difficult in the in the throes of what happened on Sunday. Uh, but I have a hard time justifying the opposite either, right? To me, this seems like a moment for, again, not buying into or not setting the stage for the Cuban government to sort of exteriorize the blame, you know, on the United States alone. This is a time for the United States to actually go in and even recognize we should have moved earlier. We don't want to aggravate your suffering, right? Your issue is not with us. It's with your leaders, perhaps, right? Taking the United States out of the equation as the boogeyman in Cuba's internal politics, I continue to believe is the best long-term recipe for allowing the Cuban people to decide what they want and where they're going to go. And ultimately, it should be up to them. It should not be up to any politician in Miami, even if that politician is Cuban-American. It should not be up to, to, to Washington either. That's so interesting. So it sort of sounds like that you can sort of make the policy and if you can argue your way to the the people that are most affected or um, interested in the policy, you might be able to take them along with you if sort of the Obama and Trump trends are. So in some respects, Biden might have an opportunity, but he might not necessarily be looking at it that way. But we definitely have seen, you know, as you said, we can't really know fully what's going on in Cuba. We've seen, you know, massive protests in Miami in solidarity And I'm curious just sort of what this moment means for people in the United States, if you have a sense, because these are massive protests. And as you say, the economic issues are huge, but they're not just about that. They're linked to the the broader issues. Yeah, I mean, it's been no surprise to see many people on the streets in Miami in sort of frequent places where Cuban-Americans gather when there is big news out of Cuba, expressing sympathy with the protesters There have been some more distressing, from my point of view, manifestations of that. The Miami mayor, Francis Suarez, climbed on top of a car and called for U.S. military intervention. And then Bob Menendez, who's no fan of, you know, the Obama policy on Cuba or anything like it, had to come out and say, listen, let's stay on planet Earth. That is not going to happen here. So there have been some, frankly, very irresponsible and I think very risky things being said in Miami, calls for international intervention, U.S. military intervention, willfully ignore a very complicated legacy of U.S. interference in Cuban affairs that in part led to the Cuban revolution in the first place, (laughs) right? Never mind feeding in even more to the narrative that the Cuban government is currently, you know, airing, which is to paint everything that's happening as simply a, a, you know, a product of provocation from the United States. So people are playing in the foreign policy sandbox who don't have I think, frankly, the knowledge base or the experience to really do so. You know, that said, one of the things that I think is really just interesting uh, about this moment is that there has been a kind of a progressive coalescing of kind of an imaginary, if you will, of grievance 
vis-a-vis the Cuban government. You know, a few years ago, we could have had a very interesting conversation about tensions in the Cuban-American community culturally, socially, between older Cuban exiles, younger Cuban migrants who go back and forth to the island, right? There's kind of cultural differences, tensions, policy differences there. You know, a good example of a kind of merging of ways of thought is this viral hit, Patria y Vida, this song that came out a few months ago and that has been one of the anthems that the protesters on the streets in Cuba have been singing. Its historical vision, in a way, encapsulates what is a very old Cuban exile way of seeing the Cuban past, which is to understand that before the revolution, everything was basically okay, and then the revolution came and, 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 and you know, ruined it all. Y este sentimiento ya es tan viejo you know, to that, I always put my historian's cap on and I say, well, if everything was okay before the revolution, there wouldn't have been a revolution in the first place. Right? So, so it's a kind of a simplified, condensed historical narrative that I think does a disservice to the complexity of the history, but is working right now to sort of coalesce people uh, and say, let's get beyond our own divisions. Let's focus on one cause, which is, you know, ending the Cuban government as we know it, period. So so that that is a, a reality here right now that I think is new um, and is a product of the last few years. Yeah, I'm interested about the Patria y Vida. I was listening to the song yesterday while I was, uh, was writing about this, and it's very, very catchy. And it does seem that this artistic expression has kind of given the ability maybe for Cubans to sort of do this kind of massive protest, which is obviously tied to huge, huge issues. But can you talk a little bit about that of sort of this kind of artistic movement that may have sort of helped shape what we're seeing a little bit now in terms of the message that we want change in Cuba in terms of the politics? Yeah, art and culture are incredibly powerful and shouldn't be underestimated. The Cuban government understood that very early on, interestingly enough, right? When they, in 1959, one of the first things that they did was create a state-run film industry. You know, cultural policy has been something that the Cuban government takes very seriously. And using the mass media, right, television, radio, like this is how the Cuban revolution came to power and, and, and consolidated itself in so many ways. And so it's both new and not that that I think media are, again, playing a really interesting role here. What's different now is uh, things are decentralized, right? You know, Cubans have found less filtered ways of accessing information over the last years, even before internet was on people's phones. So I think cultural texts, you know, there have long, there's a long history of artists in Cuba who kind of talk through the lines and sort of flirt with the lines of what can be said or, or not. And the way that art has served as a kind of a public sphere in Cuba in a way that the press could not because of just how controlled it was by the state and and yet there's also now it's it's more easy to make art and songs and this and that kind of outside of the institutional framework of a state run culture industry the padre vida thing is is so interesting because it 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 skirts around the state's kind of cultural institutions and and languages it's uh you know it, it caught fire what's interesting too is that the artists in it at least those artists in it who are outside of cuba these are folks actually who were some of the biggest participants in, and I would argue beneficiaries of, commercially and otherwise, from some of the opportunities that came out of the Obama normalization policy. Yotuel from Orishas, 
early example. He performed at a concert that took place in 2009 in Havana that was organized by Juanes, the Colombian artist. And it was this big sort of peace concert. And it became really controversial in Miami. You know, why would you even go and sing there? That's legitimizing the government. And Orishas went and they took a lot of heat for it in Miami, right? The guys from Gente de Sona, their songs were the soundtrack of normalization. Insofar as Americans were getting to Cuba and learning about Cuba and hearing popular Cuban music, it was like party time. The soundtrack was Gente de Sona, this other guy, De Semer Bueno, who always really had a kind of, you know, they positioned themselves as apolitical, even if they were not. Their decision to not talk about Cuban politics is itself political. And now they have flipped, you know, a, a script. And when they did, the Cuban state was quick to accuse them of being opportunistic. That's not for, for, for me to decide or judge, but it is interesting, you know, that, that role reversal in a way. And so that, that's just another interesting aspect of this song that I think is, is, is worth noting. Yeah. I wonder, you know, this may be kind of a silly question, but going back to what you said earlier, particularly with the opening of Cuba and the sense of like, oh, I want to go now when things haven't changed. But I think that created, at least perhaps in my mind, rightly or wrongly, a kind of disconnect between the repression of the Cuban regime and its, you know, crackdown on free expression and things like that and sort of like sort of communism light, so to speak. And I think maybe that's where some of the criticism of the opening came from. And I'm curious if that is sort of accurate and if you could maybe put into context exactly how repressive the Cuban regime is in terms of cracking down on artistic expression on sort of political freedoms that I think we tend to associate when we see mass demonstrations like the one we're seeing this week. There were certainly a lot of people who went to Cuba and not just Americans, you know, in the wake of the Obama moment and, you know, went with flower shirts and Panama hats and to smoke cigars and drink rum and, and, and not much else, right? I don't begrudge them that. You know, there are people, U.S. tourists travel all kinds of places in the world that have serious human rights issues, and we don't have a problem with it, right? So I think Americans should be free to travel where, where they want, do what they want as a, as a right of American citizens, period. But I would push back on the idea that, you know, the opening was just, you know, sort of allowing Americans to kind of have wool over their eyes. I think there was a lot of good that came out of the opening in terms of, you know, breeding. There were a lot of people who went and saw a more complicated side of, of Cuba, too. Uh, who met artists, who talked about what it was like to work as an artist in Cuba and could see on the one hand artists who were doing work and even exhibiting work publicly in Cuba that had, you know, very clear kind of critical undertones, you know, playing with this line of what can be said and and not, which is where that line is, is never is never clear. And artists themselves over Cuba's history have kind of constantly pushed that line and dealt with it as a kind of a moving target. Right. And yet also, you know, becoming aware of, of, you know, some of the more severe instances of cracking down on, on free expression. I think, I think comparing kind of degrees of repression in Cuba versus other places is a very tricky and fraught kind of thing. Right. What I would say is that the, the red, the biggest red line for the Cuban government has long been, you know, actual political organizing against uh, the political system and particularly the forms of political organizing against a system that are connected in some, ha- in some way, directly or indirectly, to sources of funding from the U.S. government that are appropriated for democracy promotion. Of course, there's a kind of sort of circular dynamic there, because if you don't allow in your system of laws the possibility for people to organize you know, NGOs and political groups independently, you make them illegal, and therefore they have no way of you know, 
earning an income or getting a grant or doing whatever, they have to go to foreign sources of, of income, even if those, you know, we might feel that those foreign sources of income are, are problematic insofar as they are part of a regime change policy that, you know, many Cubans would see as violating Cuba's sovereignty, regardless of what they think about the government. So I think, I think, it's, a, I think it's a complicated picture. Um, and, and I think actually, you know, in terms of you know, Cuba's broader human rights picture, it's not to say the Obama opening was perfect, but it also gave a lot of opportunities for people in Cuba to come to the United States, to have experiences, to meet people from the United States. Not that I think people from the United States are you know, the maximum authorities on, on democratic values. We've got plenty of problems on our own front, right? But but there was an expanding of, I think, reference points and experiences that overall was was quite salutary. And I think a lot of the civil society dynamism that we see in Cuba is, is part of that. Well, I think that's a really important point, actually, of the sort of soft power, right? And I think that maybe that speaks to sort of why the artists have been such a powerful force in the political discussion, because it isn't, you know, a formal political party or civil society group. It gives them some leeway and expression to be able to push back against the government, to talk about democratic values without necessarily um, immediately bringing the attention of the government upon them, I suppose. You know, as with everything, it's complicated because a lot of the, the you know, there's a, a important subset in Cuba now who call themselves um, artivists, not artists, not activists. And They've really been on the front lines and, and getting lots of attention and lots of heat from the Cuban state and also the familiar allegations that they're linked to forms of U.S. democracy promotion funding, which, you know, may be true in some ways. It may be exaggerated in others. It, it may be beside the point, you know, depending on your point of view. But I think certainly it is the case that art and culture are powerful mediums. And, you know, going back to Patria Vida, it was interesting in the wake of that, the Cuban state kind of sponsored unofficially, it seemed sort of counter anthems that they, they got other musicians to sing and they, they were just flops, you know, because they, they, they didn't have the star power behind them or they weren't catchy enough or, or they were really hokey. And, and just the kind of the discourse wasn't something that people could, could believe and didn't, and didn't speak to people's, you know, grievances economically and politically, socially, you know, at the, at this moment of crisis, escalating crisis, you know, even, even before COVID. That's so interesting. Obviously, it is complicated with the U.S.-Cuba relationship, but we obviously talked at length about sort of changing the policies. But are there ways for the U.S. to act, to take steps to ease the uh, humanitarian crisis, which is very much real in Cuba right now, without, of course, these extreme measures of military intervention, which I can't believe people are talking about, not only given the historical um, background of Cuba, but just, you know, we're leaving a 20-year war in Afghanistan, guys. Like, what, what are we thinking? <laughs> I think there's lots of things that the Biden administration can do. And so I point to things that I hear people in Cuba asking for. You know, people in Cuba are asking for aid. Cuba's in a difficult spot with COVID right now. That was part of actually what one of the detonators to the protests on Sunday that perhaps I didn't I didn't cover sufficiently. They have developed their own vaccines, for example, but they have a shortage of syringes, right? And so they've been trying to get international donations. I mean, there's a there's a huge opportunity here for the Biden administration to simply say, if nothing else, hey, uh, you know, no questions asked. Ministry of Public Health in Cuba, here's a bunch of syringes, right? You know, the, the Cuban government might accuse them of being opportunistic about it, but I think the worth the, the offer of the aid is, is is worth making. I do think that, you know, one of the things that the US government is clearly concerned about anytime that there's talk of 
unrest, instability through that, frankly, quasi-imperial way of seeing it, you know, outside of our borders or, quote unquote, in our own backyard. Uh, they worry about migration. You saw the, the Homeland Security Secretary come out and tell Cubans not to get to the waters. Um, this is a part of the Cuba's playbook in the past, right, um, of deflating crisis by, by allowing people to leave or, or encouraging them to leave. One of the things that you could do to, to lower some of those out-migration pressures, which have been building in recent years, is restaff fully the U.S. Embassy in Havana. The U.S. Embassy in Havana has been on a, a drawdown status with a skeleton crew for several years because of the quote-unquote Havana syndrome incidents. We know now that they're not just about Havana. They haven't just taken place there. It's been a long time since one happened in Havana. It's time to restaff the embassy to get the consular service up and running again. Lift remittance restrictions, right? Whether we like it or not, Cubans are, are, are suffering. There's great shortages of everything. Let Cuban-Americans do what Cuban-Americans have been doing for years, which is support their families. The Trump administration also closed off all charter and commercial flights to destinations in Cuba other than Havana. This makes it very difficult for even very humanitarian Cuban Americans and Cubans in the United States that I know who are going through, you know, through all kinds of trouble to try to get donations of medical supplies, over-the-counter medicines, things that are, that are shortages and get them to Cuba. If they don't have to travel to Havana first, they can go directly to, you know, places in the countryside. It lowers their cost. It means there's more money that can, you know, go into the hands of, of Cuba's citizens. Uh, more aid that can go into the hands of Cuba's citizens. The counter argument will be, well, if you open flights, the Cuban airport authority is going to charge taxes on the airlines and they're going to make money from it. So be it. So be it. There's a greater humanitarian good here. And that's not going to stop um, the protest movement from moving forward if the protesters want to. Right. So I think we should be wary of any argument that tries to present us with, with false choices. The United States absolutely can, at the very minimum, alleviate some of the sanctions that are hitting Cubans so hard particularly at this time of economic need, because if the if the demands on the streets are not just about economic need, if they're about politics, then the protests don't have a reason to stop necessarily if you if you loosen up U.S. policy. Interesting. And so about that, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're not sure Cuba's quite at the tipping point yet. But what are you watching to see if this does become the type of political movement that potentially threatens the, the Cuban regime? I mean, I suppose I'm watching to see if the protests continue. I'm trying to be realistic about it. One of the things that has been impressive, but it's also a challenge for from a kind of social movement perspective, I, I, I suppose, is that these protests have emerged, you know, pretty organically. The Cuban government is making a lot of hay right now of the ways in which a certain hashtag that has been used to kind of amp things up has been amplified by actors in the United States, including some that are allegedly are linked to forces of U.S. funding. That doesn't do enough to take the, <laughs> that itself doesn't explain what happened on Sunday period. But it means that it's it's decentralized. There's no leader. What was interesting about Sunday is that it didn't come out of, uh, it wasn't something that was called for by, you know, the most well-known perhaps um, activists. So how do you how do you channel that? How do you keep it going? How do you keep it going, frankly, in an environment in which the Cuban state clearly has a, a monopoly of force? So, so I suppose first and foremost, I'm wait, watching to see what's going to happen with the protests moving forward. And yeah, I, you know, what, what I, what I, hold out some hope for is that, you know, Cuban authorities will ratchet back the confrontational posture that they've adopted. They will take this as an opportunity, perhaps one of the last ones that they may get to actually 
listen to the demands of Cuba's people, or at least that portion of Cuba's population is down in the streets, to convene a national dialogue that, that many Cubans have been asking for for a long time, and to, and to step up and take the reforms and changes that they need to make internally, irrespective of what's happening in the relationship with the United States. I'm not necessarily holding my breath on, on that front. There are a number, uh, Cuba and Venezuela are very different, but we obviously have seen in the last few years lots of protest movements in Venezuela that haven't you know, resulted in a change of government. So um, I think we also have to be realistic. 